Do you remember when you were young and your parents would say to you, you know, don't eat that right now. You're going to ruin your appetite. No, you can't eat that before dinner. You're going to ruin your appetite. And of course, then you grow up and you realize, hey, wait a minute. Um, I don't think I'm going to ruin my appetite. There's endless appetites. Seinfeld had this great bit that he did years ago on appetites. And he used to say, you know, that he realized it. And he said, one of the things he loves about being an adult is I have as many cookies as I want. Sometimes I just call my mom and I'm like, I ruined my appetite on purpose. You know, I just call her. I'm like, Ma, I ruined my appetite. Cookies, you know, and he, and he talked to me. He's like, oh, you can't ruin it. There's another one coming along behind. Very insightful. There's another guy almost as insightful as Seinfeld. His name was Plato. And in uh, 380 BC, he talked about the appetite of nature of man's soul. That was kind of his philosophy. Plato talked about he talked about the, the human soul being a tripart. He's the, the noetic part of the soul, the thinking part, um, you know, the, uh, the driven part of the spirited part of the soul, the whole fight or flight kind of thing. And then there was the appetitive part of the soul, which he, he argued was the strongest, the, the, the appetite of the soul that caused you to kind of drive, you know, and drive your life. And uh, that, that, that was constant. Augustine, one of the church fathers, he also talked about the power of this appetite, this chronic appetite. He wrote uh, his confessions in 397 AD, and Augustine said uh, very candidly as he talked about his own sin, he said, you know, I love food and women too much. And as he kind of unpacked, you know, his, his insatiable appetite of his soul, Augustine said um, very insightfully, he said, uh, we can love the wrong things, but we can also love the right things in the wrong way. And so, I know I just used Plato, Augustine, and Seinfeld in the same sense. So, Seinfeld's in good company. But I just really appreciated the way that he said, you can't ruin your appetite, another one's coming along right behind it. Because all of us here are in that place um, of being human and having appetites that are insatiable. We've been going through... Paul's uh, letter to the Colossians. This morning we're going to look at chapter 2. Our text this morning, I'm about to read it. Colossians uh, chapter 1, I'm going to start reading in verse 25. And Paul has a very big message for a very small church. The Holy Spirit providentially gives Paul this huge message to this tiny little house church, or group of house churches, that is essentially saying, guys, you're beginning to adopt a philosophical, cultural idea It's very nuanced and it sounds very intelligent. And what it's telling you is you can go to Jesus for forgiveness, but you can't go to Jesus for fulfillment. God is really, really good at forgiving people, but God is not so good at fulfilling people. That was kind of what was going on in Coloss, in ancient Coloss. Paul hears about it. Paul didn't even plant that church. But Paul, pastorally, he cares for me. He's like, this is actually going to be robbing you. It's going to be sending your appetite down a track that's never going to be fulfilled. And so... Paul's letter to uh, the Colossians is, is to encourage them to say, no, we don't just look to Jesus for forgiveness. You can actually look to Christ for fulfillment. And this is what Paul argues uh, for. He's arguing, saying, the fulfillment that you're actually looking for, the fulfillment that's on the other side of this deep philosophical inquiry, this, this constant appetite on the other side of that fulfillment is actually Uh, found in Christ, you will find in him the identity, the sense of value, meaning, belonging that your soul is craving. Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 25. I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known. 
The mystery hidden for all ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all this energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those who are at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together with love, each uh, to reach all the riches of the assurance of the understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and your firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so also walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, bounding in thanksgiving. So see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit that is according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is God's word. So as we look at this text, today's whole sermon and sentence is this. Christ not only forgives us because he's the savior of our souls, Christ also fulfills us because he's the architect of our souls. That's what I said last week. That's what I'm saying this week. That's what we're going to say the next two weeks. Because Paul's whole letter is trying to help the church wrap themselves around this idea of how do you quench the appetite. And he's arguing, he's arguing philosophically that it's Christ. I'm going to show how he does that in a second. Paul is not just saying, oh no, the church isn't, you know, the church is turning from Jesus. I should use big flowery words to get them excited about Jesus again. That's not what he's doing. He's dealing with them being drawn away by Greek philosophy. So Paul's being philosophical and saying, hold on a minute. There are substantial reasons why you should not only believe this, but put your hope in it and be fulfilled by it. So let's take a look at it. In the first few verses there we read, he uses words like the word of God being fully known. And he says, the mystery of the ages is now revealed. And he says, the mystery of Christ is in you, the hope of glory. What, what does all that mean? He's, what Paul is saying, launching out here at the beginning of this text, is he's saying, in the ancient world, a perfect and loving God saving sinners was a no-no. If he's perfect and loving, and all of us are imperfect and therefore by definition sinful, then in the Greco-Roman mind, in the ancient world, it's like, no, you don't get grace. You get justice. That's what makes sense. If God is perfect and holy, and you and I aren't perfect and holy, 
If his standard is that we love our neighbor as much as we love ourselves, but none of us are actually doing that, even though we may be trying, none of us are actually accomplishing it, then we, what we actually deserve is justice. So the mystery of God, the mystery is how does a holy God save sinners? How does a holy and perfect God justify someone who doesn't deserve it at all? And the great mystery is actually revealed in Christ and his perfect life, living a life that we couldn't live, didn't live, aren't living, and all things being fulfilled in him. But when Paul says that mystery is now your hope, we actually, what are we hoping in? We talked about this last week, so I'm going to remind you, because this is what Paul is appealing to. He says, well, all of the mystery of God saving sinners is in Christ, so we put all of our hope and trust in Jesus. That hope, in English, hope means we cross our fingers and we kind of hope for the best. But in the Greek language, it means hope. When you say hope, it means confident certainty. So what Paul is saying is, you look at Jesus... And if Jesus is who he said he is, and he, did, and, he's, and he did came to do, you know, and he did what he said he came to do, which was forgive us of all our sin. Jesus said he's God. So if he is God, and he forgives us of all of our sin, and he rises from the grave, then he is what Paul calls the firstborn of all creation. In other words, in Greek, he is the prototokos. He's, he's the first one that all the rest of us are following. So the reason he's our hope is we look at Jesus' life and we say, okay, then that's the pattern of where my life is going. So if the, if the story of the end of Jesus' life is resurrection, then what is our hope? The end of our life is not slowly getting older, slowly getting sick, getting weaker, dying, darkness, death, the end. That's not the end. We look at Christ and we go, that's actually the pattern of my life. If he was raised, I'll be raised. So there's a hope now, that confident certainty. So Paul's appealing to that. And he's, and he's drawing their attention back to this. Paul says in verse 28, he's, uh, 128, he says, we preach Christ and he, we're going to dedicate our life to maturing in him. Well, spiritual maturity for the Christian, maturity comes from marveling. So we gather week in and week out on Sundays to marvel at who Jesus is, at what he has done for us. Jesus is not primarily our example. Most people think of Jesus as primarily the example, and I'm using the word primarily on purpose. He's primarily our substitute. And when you see Jesus as primarily the substitute, then Jesus as the example is an attractive and an actually an encouraging thing. But if Jesus is primarily your example, he's gonna, he'll crush you every time. Because the life that he lived and the love with which he lived and the worship to God that he, that he had and his love for the downtrodden and the outcast is far superior to anything any of us are ever going to do. So people who, who reduce Jesus from the Savior to just example and say, well, Jesus is a good example. We should live like Jesus, aren't looking at Jesus' life that closely. Because if you look at it that closely, you say, oh my goodness, I do not compare to this Jesus guy. Which is why we look to him as our Savior first and our example second. And so Paul is saying, I want you to mature. He uses that word maturity. Maturity comes from marveling. The problem with the church in Coloss, which is the whole reason we have this letter, is not that they weren't in Christ, they were. But they were immature. So how does Paul get them from being immature to mature? He's drawing them back to the implications of Christ, of who he was. He's like, You've, you're not marveling at this anymore. You're being, you're being uh, drawn away by interesting arguments and philosophies. I'm going to get to that in a second. And so they're being distracted. They're saying, yeah, well, we can be fulfilled by Jesus, but probably, or sorry, we can be forgiven by Jesus, but probably not fulfilled. So since I have this 
this appetite. There's another one coming on behind it. And they're going to go and look for something to fulfill it. And okay, now I'm feeling good. There's no end to that though. And it takes us down a road that is, uh, that is uh, tragic, which we're going to see in a minute. So Paul says in chapter 2 and verse 4, he says, I don't want you to get deluded by plausible arguments. Plausible arguments. It's a great, he, he, how he's trying to help the church out. Uh, plausible arguments here, I'm just going to give you uh, understanding. It's persuasive speech. It's, it, plausible arguments in the Greek is uh, pathanologia. And he's saying like, it's like this persuasive logic. I don't want you to get deluded by persuasive logic. And there's a big difference between something that's true and something that's persuasive. We can hear arguments all day long that are incredibly persuasive. They sound very intellectual. But they're not true, though. We encounter this all the time. You can see it in business. You can see it in politics. You can see it in art. You can see it in relationships. People can talk to you with great confidence and certainty and use intellectual phrasing and, and can really sound persuasive. But that, that persuasive argument doesn't mean that it's true. The church in Colossus was be given, be, being given a bunch of persuasive ideas. And they're like, yeah, okay, well, maybe, I don't know. Yeah, maybe I should pursue this, you know, this Gnostic idea about you know, mysteries and mysticisms, or maybe we should look at genealogies, and, or maybe because it was this eclectic mix. You know, most historians who look back and say, what was the philosophy of Colossus? Nobody really knows, because when you read through the text and parse it apart and look at history, it was, it was like a mix. It was like in Colossus, they were like, we'll take a bit of this, we'll take a bit of that. We're going to kind of take the, bit of every, the best of every, all the ideas and kind of put them together. We're going to pontificate about this. You know, things like technology advance and science advances, but philosophy does not advance. I'm not saying philosophy is bad, by the way. I'm going to get to that in a second. Philosophy doesn't advance because philosophy is asking very deep questions, but they can, philosophers continue to ask the same questions, but they're looking for uh, different ways of creating a framework of answering those same questions. And so this is what was going on. And they sounded very persuasive. The church is like, oh, maybe. How many of you have listen to a Christian tell you something they're convinced of, which is totally contrary to the Word of God. Totally contrary to the Word of God. But they've adopted it, though. They're like, well, no, this, I know, I think this may be and that, and perhaps, because it's, it's, a pers- it's persuasive. This is what Paul's dealing with here. He says, I don't want you to get um, persuaded by things that sound sophisticated. And uh, one of the challenges of dealing with arguments that are sophisticated, which the church then was dealing with, and what we can deal with is, Sometimes our sophisticated arguments get met with a sneer. So something as simple as you go on your university campus and you say, well, I don't believe that we are just products of blind chance or that the natural world is all that there is. I believe that there is a divine uh, presence, there is a divine intelligent designer, there is a God. I believe as a Christian, I believe there is a God who actually set in motion the world from nothing. And that can be met with a sophisticated argument. You can have an intellectual dialogue. With it. But it can also just be met with a sneer. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, you believe in God. Oh, okay, you believe in God. See, that's not an argument. That's just a sneer. But when somebody sneers at you, it can make you feel about this big. And so Paul is saying to this church who's being surrounded by Greek philosophy, uh, who are being sneered at, and so as a result of feeling pressured because of the sneer, started to kind of adopt these other ideas. And Paul's like, wait a minute, hold on. I've got to go back to 
why Jesus Christ can actually fulfill you and why that's reasonable um, to believe that he can. So in verse 6, Paul says, as you received, so walk, which is great. He's saying, the way you continue in Christian faith is the way you began, by God's grace. We began by God's grace and love for us, which brought us to faith in Christ alone. And the way that we continue and mature is by God's grace, by marveling at it and thinking about the implications of it and what it means. So in verse 7, Paul goes on to say, I want you to be rooted and I want you to be built up and established in Christ. And so uh, Paul's writing this letter because he's recognizing that if you're not rooted and established in why it's reasonable to believe, about, believe in Jesus and believe in his sacrifice and believe in the cross and the implications of the resurrection, then what will happen is you'll turn from the Savior to a very small functional Savior. My soul is hungry. I want to be fulfilled in life. When I leave church on Sunday and I go about my, my life on Monday, there's things that I care about that matter and that are important. And I have a sense of wanting to be fulfilled. But if my ultimate hope isn't resting in, 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 in Christ Jesus and the implications of his resurrection, which I'm going to get to in a second, I'm going to go from that Savior to all these little functional Saviors. And the problem with that is I'm going to be looking for this ultimate lasting sense of fulfillment in my soul in these, these things to quench that appetite, but they can't quench the appetite. And so as a result, we, need the, the, we, we, we chase after these functional Saviors. I need a romantic encounter. Okay, but that didn't do it. I need another one. I need a more exciting romantic encounter. I need this. The money I have isn't enough. I need, I need more. I need the next business acquisition. And then the next one comes, but it's not enough. I need the next one. I need, I need more people to like my life on social media. I need more people to affirm that my life is as interesting as I am portraying it to be. I need that. I need uh, more... Uh, I need the next generation phone because this one's old. I need the next generation gaming system. I need the next generation car. I need the next generation house. I need a Pinterest perfect life. I need everybody to think that my parenting is on point. Not because I want to be a good parent because I love my children, but because I'm being validated in my identity by this functional savior, this affirmation coming at me and telling me that I am okay. I need my fashion sense to be on point. Not because I like fashion, but because every time I get a pat on the back, it's like opium that tells me that I'm okay. I need better marks on my transcripts. I got to get into the better school. I got to get in university. I got to get on the dean's list. Not because I'm excited about using my gifts to God's glory in the city to help the city benefit and help other people benefit, but because those marks tell me that I'm okay. And if those marks go down, that tells me I'm not okay. And I need those marks to be up because that's affirming to me that I'm okay. The moment we leave the hope of the Savior, we turn to functional saviors and they can't quench the appetite because there's another appetite coming tomorrow that needs to be fed. This is the problem. This is the dilemma. That treadmill of the soul never stops. We need kids. Okay, I'm not happy. We need to have a child to be happy. Okay, we need to have more children to be happy. Okay, we have children. We need to get rid of these children to be happy. Okay, I'm not married. I want to be married to be happy. Okay, I got married, but now I need to change my spouse so I can be happy. Okay, now I got to get rid of this spouse so I can be happy. There's no end to it. Paul is, Paul is looking at them deviating from Jesus Christ to these other philosophical ideas to quench 
the craving appetite, and he's going, this is going no place good. It's going no place good. You're not actually going to be, you're not even going to be able to enjoy good things. Because you're going to worship these good things, these little things. You're going to turn them into ultimate things. This isn't a good trajectory. And by the way, I'm not talking down to you, because us preachers are not immune to this whatsoever. We, we have no spiritual advantage. There's not a red phone on my desk like the bat phone straight to heaven where I have access to something that nobody else has. Preachers need the gospel. Pastors need the gospel that we preach. We are not immune to the treadmill of the soul. If I don't rest in the gospel that I'm preaching, I won't love the church, serve the church. I'll use the church. I'll use the quote-unquote success of the church as some sort of a validation for my fragile ego. We will use... You know, if we need a pat on the back to say that was a great sermon today, then that's going to be a chronic, chronic, never-ending train wreck because Sundays roll around every Sunday <laughs> forever till Jesus returns. So all of us are in need of the great grace of God and all of us are need in being rooted and established and resting uh, in Jesus. And so the only way to truly enjoy the things of life is by not living for them. And if we do not, as Paul is encouraging, if we do not look to Christ and the implications of him being who he said he was and find rest there, then we have no choice as the creation. We have no choice but to live for it. If there is no God and there is no Jesus and Jesus did not rise from the dead, then we are just natural beings, part of a natural process, and we have no choice but to live for today. And if you think about that, now if you're young and healthy, you probably don't care. But if you're not healthy, you think about your mortality. If you're older and you've lived and you've had some suffering, you think about this deeply. If you've traveled outside of Kitchener-Waterloo and you've gone across seas and you've been to other countries and you've seen things, it changes the way you think about your mortality. And what Paul is getting at here is he's saying the, the only way to truly enjoy the things of life is by not living for them. You have to go to the source of life which frees and liberates your soul, your appetite. You live in worship to Christ, and then you're free to actually enjoy things. In verse uh, 8, chapter 2 and verse 8, Paul says, I don't want you to be taken captive by philosophy. And this is what I want to get at, because my experience has been some Christians think philosophy is a bad word and the study of philosophy is bad, and I need you to know that that's not what Paul's getting at here. Philosophy, classically speaking, the word philosophy in the Greek is phileosophia. Phileo means love. Sophia means wisdom. So classically speaking, philosophy is the love of wisdom. So therefore, to engage in philosophy, classically speaking, is because I love wisdom, I'm going to wrestle with the framework of understanding our existence, what is true, what is ethical, what is justice, what is mercy. I'm going to wrestle with all of these things because I have a love of wisdom. So Paul's not anti-philosophy. He's anti a very specific kind of philosophy, which he points out right here in, in verse 8. He says, he's, he's, don't be taken captive by a love of wisdom, phileo sophia, that is according to human tradition and the elemental principles of the world. What is that? He's saying, I'm not against the love of wisdom. I'm against you limiting your love of wisdom to a very small scope called everything that you understand. Because if you limit it to that and you say, well, my philosophy is based on what the culture is telling me, my own personal beliefs, kind of what I think about the world, what the culture is telling me how I think about the world. If that's, if that's how you limit your scope, you're going to find yourself in a trajectory 
of tiny little functional saviors because God is out of that philosophy. That's why he says, if you read the whole text, he says, I don't want you taken captive by philosophy that's according to human tradition and not according to Christ. So what Paul is arguing for is a love of wisdom, a philosophia, a way of looking at the world, our existence, reality, truth, knowledge, justice, ethics, that is according to someone who claimed they were God, was crucified on a Roman cross, three days later the tomb was empty, and if that's true, then everything that he said has radical implications for the rest that our souls get to enjoy in the life that uh, and the life that we all writ- live. So, in a sense, Paul is saying to Colossus, beware the sound of one hand clapping. You're in a culture that's making an argument, but they're not willing to look at this other argument, and then Paul says, and here it is. 20 years ago, 33 AD, from this letter, Paul is saying 20 years ago, Jesus Christ appeared before Pontius Pilate. I appeared before Porcius Festus and King Agrippa, and I said, these things weren't done in a corner, right? That's Acts 26. And he's like, Jesus Christ said he was God. Three days later, the tomb was empty. Nobody disputes the tomb was empty. It's, it's world history that the tomb is empty because both the Romans and the religious leaders got together and made up a story about why the tomb was empty. And they never produced a body. And Paul is saying, Coloss, you have to think about something here. You're trying to fulfill yourself in these little things. You're eating cookies. Hold on a second. Stop. Because... If Jesus was who he said he was, then he was God. And if he actually did what he said he came to do, it's that he died for your sin. He did the impossible thing of making it possible for you to be in relationship with God. And then he rose from the dead. You see, he's the deepest answer to your most philosophical questions. Which is, how did I get here? How, do I, how am I fulfilled while I am here? And where am I going to go after I die and I'm no longer here? And Paul's going, if the answers to those questions are found by looking at the one who rose from the grave, because that's giving you a sense of your trajectory, which means you're created for God by God. You're here to enjoy all of life to the glory of God, worship God, enabling you to actually enjoy things without worshiping these little things. And then in the end, you're going to be restored and raised by God. So Paul's making a, a huge argument here, but he's not just saying, you know, it's nice things. He's going back saying the Jesus that resurrected from the grave has eyewitnesses. He appeared to the women first because all the men ran away. Right? There's 12 guys. They said, we're out of here. We don't want any part of this. We're going to be on the cross next. So they ran. So Jesus appears to two women, and those two women go and they, and they say that the Christ is resurrected. If you're making up a hoax and you're making up a religion, and I've said this many times, you know you would never tell women because in the ancient world, the women's testimony didn't hold up in court, right? The Babylonian Talmud said it's better that the words of the law be burnt than put in the hands of a woman. How offensive is that? So what does the God of the universe do? He reveals himself to women. And then these women, then he reveals himself to the 12, and then he revealed himself to 500 people at one time. This is 1 Corinthians 15. And those 500 witnesses saw Christ, most of them were still alive by the, when Paul wrote this letter to the Colossians. So when Paul is writing to Coloss, he's like, you can fact check this. There's over 500 people that saw this. Christ walked around for 40 days before the ascension. So Paul is not saying, oh my goodness, there are these deep philosophical arguments in Coloss. Christianity is like this dumb religion where you have to like, check your brains at the door and not think very deeply about things so quick. I better write a letter to the Colossians and say, stay away from philosophy. That is not what he's doing whatsoever. He's saying, okay, let's engage in philosophical thought 
and let's pin our philosophy to a point in human history. Say, if you truly are philosophic, if you truly do philosophia, love wisdom, you have to grapple with the empty tomb. You have to grapple with that. You can't just turn a blind eye to that and say, well, it's a legend. It isn't a legend. Any sociologist at the University of Waterloo or Laurier down the street will tell you people don't change their worldviews overnight. Changing a worldview takes generations, centuries. So you've got Jews overnight worshiping a man. When they were raised for thousands of years, 2,100 years since Abraham, God is not a man. And then all of a sudden they're worshiping a man overnight, the resurrected Christ. How did they abandon that worldview? Then not only the Jews, but the Greeks and the Romans have abandoned their philosophy, which they've had since before Plato. And overnight they're worshiping Jesus Christ as a man. Any sociologist will tell you, okay, the global explosion and expansion of Christianity in the first century does not make a lot of sense. Because people don't just wake up and change their minds overnight. And you certainly don't give your life for a hoax and say, well, you know, we want to stick it to Rome and just create a big fuss. And so we're going to, that, that's, that wouldn't work. Rome was totalitarian for a thousand years. So Paul is going back and saying, I believe that happened. Church, you and I are looking back and saying, what is our hope in life and death? We look back at that point in history and we say, we believe that that happened. Which is why in verse 9, Paul says that, in Christ, the deity of God dwelled bodily. Do you see that word bodily in verse 9 there? That's the second time Paul mentioned that Jesus was a man. The second time in his introduction. Why? Because the Gnostic philosophy, the, uh, all of these other ideas that were rolling around in, in ancient Greece was like, the physical universe is no good. The material is no good. The whole goal is to escape the material. Get out of this dirty, ugly, sinful you know, world where there's oppression and violence and people are killing each other. Get out of it. That was Greek philosophy. And Paul twice says, Jesus became a man. Why would he do that? If you read Hesiod's Theogony, Hesiod's Theogony is uh, 700 BC, the story of the origin of the gods. And you read the story of the origin of the gods and you read the Theogony and all of the gods are basically like, you know, humanity is such a disaster. The Christian God doesn't hate the physical. The Christian God created the physical loves the physical, entered the physical. Jesus Christ comes, clothes himself, clothes himself in the dirt of creation. Why? Because he's going to restore all things. The great Christian hope is not evacuation. The great Christian hope is restoration. Paul, twice in the first introduction, says Christ was a man. This has implications. It's good news. It's hope. It's hope for us. This is what he's doing. He came, Jesus Christ came and he went to the cross and he became a man, not so that in the end he would do away with creation, but that God's grace perfects creation. All the miracles that Jesus did. When Jesus did a miracle and he healed somebody, was he like interrupting the natural order? That's the way we think about miracles. Whoa, miracles, like it interrupted the natural, you know, it, it broke into the natural order. No, no, no. The miracle was Christ restoring the natural order. Us living in bodies that get sick and die is not God's design, it's not natural. Jesus healing and making something perfect was him saying, I'm just going to give you a sign of what's coming. That's why the miracles in the Bible are all called signs, right? Because signs point. 
So every time Jesus did a miracle, it was never about the actual miracle. Right? So that's why we look at them and we say, okay, this is pointing to something. He's restoring something. Grace restores. And I'm going to close with this. The answer to all of these uh, of our hopes and the answer to all of our dreams and the, the philosophical recalibration that gives rest to our souls so that whether as life is good or bad or we are healthy or we are sick or we're in, or we're in abundance or we're in lack or things in your life are difficult or things in your life are, are, are good and amicable, we have this great hope. Because Christ, when we worship him, he gives us a sense of identity that transcends everything that we're doing so that neither our success or our failure defines us. Neither our health or sickness defines us. Neither our state of being on top of life or life being on top of us, this type of thing, those things don't define us. He's giving us this great sense of hope here so that we can actually enjoy all things because the God-sized appetite in our, whole, in our soul has been filled by Christ because he's, he transcends all things. That's why in verses 11 and 12, when he gets to the end, he talks about baptism. Why would Paul go from philosophy, hey, I don't want you to get t- sidelined by philosophy, then all of a sudden he drops baptism in there. Because just as the water washes away dirt, Christ's blood washes away from our sin. Just as you come up out of the waters of baptism, one day that's a reminder you're coming up out of the grave. This is the picture. This is the bedrock of Christian philosophy, of how we are free now, to live our lives and give our lives away because we know that this life isn't all that there is. Which is why if life gets hard or even tragic, we mourn, Christians mourn, but we don't mourn like those without hope. Because if Christ never raised from the dead, then every time you lose something in your life, it's never coming back. But for us as Christians, every time we lose something, we know God is restoring it. And this is our great Christian hope. And so he gives us these covenant signs. He says in verse 13, you were dead, but God made you alive. And then he closes this thing. Paul puts an exclamation point on this passage, and I put the exclamation point on it here. In verse 14, Paul says, your debt has been canceled because of Christ. Canceled. It's over. Not canceled like when you cancel your gym membership. You call and you cancel your gym membership, and they say, okay, yep, we've marked it down that it's canceled, but next month's payment is coming out. So you're free to go to the gym as much as you want between now and next month. Every time, it will universally happen. Cancel your gym membership? Okay, got it. Canceled? Yep, but there's one more payment coming. You know, most people think that Christian religion is like that. You come to faith in Christ, and you put your faith in Christ, and he forgives your sin, but yeah, but there's one more payment coming. Judgment day is coming. For us, who are in Christ, whose faith is in Christ, it's canceled. We're not paying for it on judgment day. Judgment day already happened. Paul ends this passage with this great uh, sense of hope to tell us that the cross of Christ is not a starter kit that made our salvation possible. It's the once and for all sacrifice that made it actual. Christ not only forgives us of our sin because he's our savior, but he fulfills our souls because he's the architect of our souls. And so now we rest in this church and we leave this Sunday and we go out into our lives tomorrow and we live to the glory of the one who has saved us in grace from the sense of great hope. Let's pray together.